You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change and when should we start building our rafts? Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything. available everywhere you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers and all our episodes ad-free. Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening. Smite my womb. What would you do for real power? The kind of power that shapes empires. The kind of power that changes the face of history. The kind of power that few women have ever experienced in the ancient world. The kind of power that will keep you and your child safe forever. What would you do to wield this power? Would you murder? Would you be content to wield this power through your husband and son? Could you be content with this? After all you've endured, the lies, the exile, the betrayals, the death, could you allow yourself to be sidelined by lesser men? Men who think you're just a silly, grasping woman. Men who haven't endured half of what you've endured. Men who would use your own child against you. Who would see you relegated to obscurity. Who would do anything to silence you. What would you do? What could you do if there was no one standing in your way? This is the story of a remarkable woman who helped reshape the Roman Empire, an empress, a sister of an emperor, and the mother of an emperor. This is the story of Agrippina the Younger. Forget whatever you thought you knew about her. Close your eyes and open your ears and listen to the story of a woman whose name deserves to be remembered, along with Cleopatra, Boudicca, Spartacus, Julius Caesar, and Augustus. This is the story of a woman who dared to play at the dangerous game of politics and who would leave her mark on the world. This is the story of the first true empress of Rome. I'm Jen McMenemy. And I'm Jenny Williamson. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. We're back with the final part in our epic Ancient World Stark family saga. As we mentioned in the previous episode, this isn't a great place to jump into the story. Exactly. It would be like reading A Feast for Crows before you read A Storm of Swords, and much like Game of Thrones, this family drama has a lot of players who make a lot more sense in context. So if you've just found this podcast or you thought you'd drop into the story at this point, go back and listen to the first episode in the series, Germanicus and the Manicus.
Yeah, and then check out Rise and Fall of Little Boots and Agrippina and the Wolf Girl, because everything you're going to listen to in this episode is the payoff for following the series from the beginning. Don't worry, we'll still be here when you're done. And they're back. You're back, right? I hope so. Welcome back. Welcome back. So when we last left off in our ancient world Stark family saga, Agrippina the Younger, the last surviving child of Germanicus, had returned to Rome. She'd arrived with nothing. Her estate had been confiscated, and she'd clawed her way back from poverty, marrying rich, and then engineering to be the beneficiary of her husband's will right before her husband conveniently kicked the bucket. She'd then orchestrated a triumphant comeback and was starting to get the attention of the people. She was just the right amount of tragic and triumphant to capture the interest of the Roman public and win them over. Picture her as a late-season Sansa Stark. She's had a really tough time of it, but she's back in Rome and she's ready to kick ass and take names and chew gum, and she is all out of gum. You know, that family of Germanicus are always all out of gum. Yeah, they really just need to get some more gum. They need to stock up, man. She's ready to get to the last items at the bottom of her bullet journal list, her bujo. She would totally have a bujo. She totally would have a bujo, and it would have things like... Become Empress of Rome. Check. (laughs) See sun on the throne. Check. Eat very small amounts of poison every day so that you are immune to almost every single poison. Yeah, that's one of those habits that you know down every day. Check off the list. Check. Make sure that your enemies are eliminated, neutralized, or exiled. Right. Check, check, check. Check, check. She's doing well. She's keeping on to her goals. Agrippina had the right family name to make waves in the upper echelons of Roman society, and now it was finally her time to step into the spotlight. But the thing was, getting into the spotlight and wielding real power wasn't going to be easy. Because even with the right name and the right family connections, she was still a single woman without a powerful husband, and she needed the emperor's favor to progress her agenda. But as luck would have it, her ship had just come in. You see, the emperor had a wife problem. Big surprise. Claudius's third wife, the Empress Messalina, had been a tire fire. We talked about her in our last episode, Agrippina and the Wolf Girl, and we're not going to rehash the episode here, except to say that Messalina had been a total nightmare for Claudius. He doted on his young, hot wife who had given him two beautiful children, Claudia Octavia and Britannicus. He had given her unprecedented freedom. He'd turned a blind eye while she'd had affair after affair after affair after affair after affair after affair. After affair, after affair, after affair with the men of the Senate and the aristocracy. He'd been pretty content to just let Messalina Messalina, which, you know, in the ancient world, that's kind of a good marriage. Yeah, I mean, he's just letting her be herself, you know, which involved gilded nipples and orgies in the basement. I mean, you know, Messalina gonna Messalina. Everything was going along swimmingly, I guess, in this relationship. <laughs> so Messalina just went right along Messalining until she polygamously married Silius, who has just a ridiculous name, guys. He was a very serious person. Yeah. Yeah, not silly at all. Not silly at all. He married the Empress of Rome and, like, pretty much had a coup against Claudius. So, I mean, I think he'd be disappointed that we found his name amusing. Maybe he made her laugh. I don't know. Oh, I hope so. He's the silliest. This marriage was either the dumbest move she could have ever made, a carefully set up plot by her enemies to use a religious ceremonial marriage, which was not legally binding in any way, to turn the empress into a bigamist, or a shrewd move to get an ineffectual emperor out of the way. We go into all of the options in our last episode, and it's totally, utterly fascinating. So go give it a listen, because why would you not want to? Because it's awesome. So Messalina's story ended with her losing her life at the hands of Claudius's soldiers. And Claudius was now single. Yeah, single and definitely not ready to 
to mingle. No, he was not ready to mingle because as far as Claudius was concerned, he'd had three wives, they'd all made him miserable, and he was happy to be single for the rest of his life. He had a bevy of very attractive slave girls who he regularly slept with, and he didn't really want the drama of marrying another aristocratic woman who would just make his life another form of a nightmare. Yeah, Claudius was really, really done with marriage. He'd had three marriages, and they'd all ended with him alone. His first marriage to a woman named Plotia had ended in divorce when he accused her of adultery and murdering her sister-in-law, Apronia, which is kind of a deal-breaker to me. And when she gave birth to a baby girl shortly after their divorce and claimed the child was Claudius's, she even gave the girl the name Claudia, Claudius denied being her father and refused to acknowledge the child and claimed the father was actually a slave. His second marriage also ended in divorce. According to Suetonius, Claudius divorced his wife, Alia, for, quote, slight offenses. The ancient sources don't elaborate on what those slight offenses might be. The more modern sources suggest maybe some kind of mental or emotional abuse. Um, and she was also Sejanus's adoptive sister. And if you don't know who Sejanus is, then go back and listen to our episodes on the Praetorian Guard, because this is the episode where we just tell you to listen to other episodes. Yeah. Can you tell this is the last episode of this series? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, if whatever you were planning on doing today, just forget it. Now you're listening to like, four different episodes from Ancient History Fangirl. Yeah, now you're going down the rabbit hole. Have fun. Bye. We'll be here when you get back. But whatever their marital woes, Claudius and Aelia produced one child, Claudia Antonia. Claudius divorced Aelia once their marriage became a political liability, so there was not an epic love story here. And as we've already mentioned, Claudius and Messalina's marriage was so infamous, we still cannot shut up about it 2,000 years later. So Claudius, the Tyrian Lannister in our story, decided he was done with pretty faces. He was done with beautiful aristocratic women, he was content to rule wisely without the help or hindrance of another wife. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. The thing is, the people around Claudius weren't happy to let the emperor remain single. They wanted the emperor remarried, and quickly, because whoever sat at his side would have an enormous amount of influence over the emperor, and leaving that seat vacant opened up all sorts of problems, especially for the Roman aristocracy. Because Claudius wasn't like the emperors who'd come before him. He'd spent much of his life on the outskirts of the Roman aristocracy, despite being a part of the first family, and as a result, he trusted his freedmen and loyal friends, who had been with him when all the aristocrats in Rome were making fun of his limp or his stammer or his inappropriate laughter. Claudius wasn't a fan of the upper classes, and without an aristocratic wife at his side, this could be a very dangerous time for them. The memory of the purges of Tiberius and the shit show that had been Caligula's reign were still very fresh in their minds, and there was only one thing to be done. Find Claudius a suitable wife, one of their tribe, who could exert a positive influence over her husband. 
Enter Agrippina. Agrippina was the last surviving child of Germanicus, and she was incredibly shrewd. She'd sat out the early years of Claudius's reign, just chilling in the country, marrying a crazy wealthy man, having him killed, and raising her small boy. You know, like you do when you're staying out of trouble. That's what I do when I stay out of trouble. Murder your husband on the sly, and add to your wealth. I mean, don't tell my husband that. He might get worried. There's a reason I'm single. I say that all the time. (laughs) Reason number 5,472. I feel like Agrippina would be really good at the life insurance murder scam. That's basically what she did, right? Um, with one husband. Claudius, it was something different. Right, but we haven't made it to Claudius yet. Like with this, with Batiatis or whatever his name is. What is his name? Crispus Passianus. I think it's Passianus. It's definitely Passianus, but I like saying Passianus, so. Your your mouth just forms the word anus before you can stop it. And there you go. Anyway. She'd seen the absolute chaos that was Messalina's court and noped right out. Her other option would have been to remain in Rome and try to navigate those political waters, and that plan had gotten her youngest sister, Lavilla, exiled and then starved to death when Messalina started seeing her as a threat. Agrippina took one look at the nightmare that was Rome and decided her talents were better used somewhere totally else. Until about 47 AD, when Agrippina and Nero returned to Rome in a splashy entrance to take part in the once-in-a-generation secular games, except they weren't once-in-a-generation because Claudius was super thirsty. Because Claudius was super thirsty, and Augustus was super thirsty, and I feel like there was an emperor who comes not long after Claudius who was also super thirsty. Like, the games were supposed to take place every 100 or 150 years, and they took place, like, roughly every, like, 80 to 60 years. (laughs) Can't remember the exact ones, but it was never 150 years like it was supposed to be. Yeah, well, anyway, so the secular games were supposed to be once in a generation. One thing they never almost were was once in a generation. Because there was always a thirsty emperor who needed to show the people that he could have the games. Right. So Agrippina had been quietly amassing a fortune and playing a behind-the-scenes game of power and politics in order to give herself a strong foundation for getting back in the shark tank. And things might have gone very differently for her and Nero had Messalina not self-destructed. Instead, all Agrippina had to do was bide her time, befriend the right freedman in Claudius's court, and keep her head down. With the death of Messalina, Claudius's advisors very quickly pressured the 57-year-old emperor to remarry. They set out a political beauty contest of sorts. I love this detail. As Annalise Friesenbrook notes in her book, The First Ladies of Rome, this beauty contest comes to us from Tacitus. Jen, I can see that you're rolling your eyes. I had to spend so much time with Tacitus and I just, I need a shower now. Jen got real up close and personal with Tacitus in this one. Anyway, this beauty contest served as a way to make Claudius look even more incompetent and unable to make a decision without relying totally on his freedmen. And you see this a lot. Suetonius does this too. I feel like a lot of the ancient sources just are really, they really want to make Claudius look inept, which is a bit unfair, but maybe it wasn't. I mean, we didn't know the guy. He might have been inept, but I suspect he ruled for 13 years. He had to be doing something a little bit right because nobody got that stabby with him. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, he lasted for 13 years without getting ganked. Well, exactly. Tiberius lasted as long as he did because he was on an island. Augustus was a powerhouse. Caligula made it like three and a half, four years because people had had enough of him and they got stabby. He was basically just begging to be assassinated. Yeah, whatever Claudius was doing, he must have been doing it well, or he must have had an excellent partner who was helping him do it well. 
We're getting to that. This whole beauty contest story was one that ancient sources told, like we said, to make Claudius look inept, but actually, to modernize, this was a decision that did require a lot of thought and careful consideration. Whoever Claudius married would rule at his side, and after the hot mess of Messalina, there in the name, it's like what it says on the tin, (laughs) the new empress would have to do a lot of damage control to rehabilitate the emperor's reputation. And whoever got the role had to be excellent at working with Claudius's court of freedmen, the senate, and the aristocracy. And that's no small order. It's really not. It's really complicated. So there were three viable options for the future Empress of Rome. Each was championed by one of Claudius's trusted freedmen. The first was Claudius's former wife, Aelia, and she was championed by Narcissus. Next came Kelsidus's suggestion of Lalia Paulina, who we saw earlier in this saga. Lalia was the fabulously wealthy ex-wife of Caligula. She was super shiny. She was the one who we talked about who loved to like bedazzle everything she owned. She sparkled a lot. I know. My magpie self would just like, I couldn't handle it. You'd just be like, I need to kidnap you and keep you on a shelf and just look at you because you're so sparkly. Pretty much. I just need to take all the bedazzle and put it in my little magpie nest for my future children. So if Jen ever met Lalia, she'd just steal her shit. Probably. I mean, yeah, if I ever met Lalia, I would be in trouble because the ancient world is not somewhere I want to live. Yeah, the ancient world is not a place where you want to casually steal rich people's things. (laughs) (laughs) No. And finally, Pallas chose Agrippina. Okay, here are your options, Claudius. Your emotionally abusive ex-wife, the ex-wife of your nephew, or Agrippina. Your niece. Agrippina was a wild card because she was actually Claudius's niece. Not an adopted child, not a distant relation, which as we've discussed time and again in this series is totally cool to marry. Agrippina was actually Claudius's brother's daughter. And I've said it that way so you can slow down and think about what that means. The Romans might be cool with people marrying 14-year-olds or cousins, but they drew the line at marrying your brother's daughter. Again, I've said it that way so you can think about that. Your brother's daughter. In ancient Greece, it was totally okay, though. That's exactly where I was going, Jenny. In ancient Greece, this was totally okay. And while Rome did take a lot of its cultural cues from ancient Greece, you know, it's possible this may not be as taboo as it is today in most modern societies. But at this point in ancient Rome, there was a law against marrying your niece or nephew. It's one of those things where apparently it happened often enough that they needed to have a law against it. One of the reasons why you probably don't want to live in ancient Rome. You could wind up married to your niece or your uncle. However, Agrippina was a lightning rod for political dissidents, and as such, she either had to be married off to someone innocuous or she had to disappear. However, if Claudius married her, not only did he nullify that threat, but he had all the popularity of the Germanicus family working for him, not against him. Agrippina turned out to be an extremely strong candidate. She was immensely popular with the people, and in general, she could give Claudius exactly what he needed. Not an heir, he had that already. Not a sexy young wife, although she was, by all accounts, stunningly beautiful. But a sophisticated and clever woman who could rule at his side, and who could play the game of politics as well as him, maybe better, and help get the empire back on track. And this marriage would also unify the two factions of the Julian-Claudian dynasty. The two branches had been in a state of conflict ever since Agrippina the Elder, Agrippina's mother, accused the emperor Tiberius of murdering Germanicus because Agrippina the Elder could not stop talking about this. Super hard to have small talk with Agrippina the Elder. Yeah. If you listen to our episode, Germanicus the Manicus, a typical dinner party with Agrippina went like this. Hey, Agrippina, how are you doing? I got this amazing recipe for vegan scones. 
Well, I'm doing really crappy because Tiberius murdered my husband. Yeah, I know, but vegan scones. He's sitting right over there and he murdered my husband. All right, maybe you don't like baking. What about your hairstyle? Who did that carotene treatment? It looks incredible. Tiberius murdered my husband. Are you not listening? I mean, the thing is, Agrippina, he's sitting right there. I'm not going to have this discussion with you again. I'm just going to talk about this even louder. All right, well, you're just going to get exiled, and I'm just going to go over here and try not to get myself sent onto an island with you. It's actually probably pretty dangerous to, like, hang out with Agrippina the Elder at this moment. And here I was, just trying to give you my vegan scone recipe. Agrippina the Elder, don't let her buttonhole you into a corner at a banquet with Tiberius present because he's going <laughs> to assume you're a collaborator and send you off to Pontus. So anyway... This marriage of Claudius to Agrippina the Younger was a great way to actually make peace among the family. This opportunity was entirely too good to pass up. So according to Annalise Friesenbrook, Claudius had his handy fixer, Lucius Vitellius, who appears nowhere else in this podcast. I mean, that's according to Annalise Friesenbrook. I did not go into too many weeds with Vitellius, the fixer. Right, so Vitellius is a guy who really worked behind the scenes. It's like, in our last episode, whenever there were plot holes, a wizard did it. In this one, if there is a plot hole, Lucius Vitellius did it. Absolutely. He is the wizard in Claudius's court. Right, he's the court wizard, and he specializes in uncle-niece marriage. Yeah, he makes all of Claudius's morally objectionable problems go away. Right, he waves his wand, and all of a sudden, boom, you're incestuously married to someone in your family. <laughs> because, <laughs> because Vitellius convinced the Senate to waive the law that didn't allow a man to marry his brother's child so that Claudius could marry Agrippina. To me, it's very clear that Agrippina married Claudius for power and possibly security, but here's what Suetonius had to say about their marriage. Quote, Claudius's affections were ensnared by the wiles of Agrippina, daughter of his brother Germanicus, aided by the right of exchanging kisses and the opportunities for endearments offered by their relationship. Ew. Skin crawling right off body. This is still not the worst passage we've read in this series, though. It is really not. It's not as bad as some of the stuff in Little Boots, but it's it's up there. Anyway, Uncle and niece kissing and sharing endearments. Oh, Uncle Claudius. No, no, we're not going there. <laughs> this is terrible. I'm going to stop dirty talking to Uncle Claudius. Um... <laughs> 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 oh my god, we're sick. I'm sick. It's my fault. I blame myself. You're definitely <laughs> sick. You have tried to fuck eagles. And hamburgers. Uh, dirty talk the dead emperor Claudius. Gotten pregnant by Germanicus. That Oh, that was you. You got ghost pregnant in the Germanicus the Manicus episode. <laughs> well very potent. <laughs> right, he is very potent. You have to, just FYI, when you listen to the Germanicus the Manicus episode, use protection. Ghost protection. <laughs> and at the next meeting of the Senate, moving on, <laughs> he induced some of the members to propose that he be compelled to marry Agrippina. Like, twist my arm, guys. Make me marry my niece, please. Please. It's for the good of the nation, but I know I shouldn't. I will do anything for the good of the state. I'm nearly 60 and she's only 32. Oh, I shouldn't. I just shouldn't marry my young, nubile niece. And he also <laughs> said that others should be allowed to contract similar marriages, which up until that time had been regarded as incestuous. And he married her with hardly a single day's delay, but none were found to follow his example save a freedman and a chief centurion whose marriage ceremony he himself attended with Agrippina. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine that, Jenny? They were like the ancient world niece uncle wedding crashers <laughs> <laughs> i mean i 
just love the idea that Claudius was such a starry-eyed romantic when it came to uncles marrying their nieces. He was like, I just have to let other people be allowed to express their love like we are. I feel like Claudius had to have been a romantic. He had four marriages. And I think maybe he was waiting for the one who loved him back. Maybe there was a little romantic character flaw in him. And way to take it to a place of pathos, Jen. That's pretty impressive. Well, I try. So on January 1st, 49 AD, three months after the death of Messalina, Agrippina became Empress of Rome. She took that item off her bucket list. So I want to like pause for a minute here and talk about my apprehensions I had in researching Agrippina. You had apprehensions about researching Agrippina? I did. I mean, I kind of got swept away by the whole epic arc of this family and how tragic it was and how fascinating everyone was. And the people who I knew really well were obviously Caligula. I knew Agrippina the Elder and Germanicus. And then I knew Agrippina the Younger. And I did not like Agrippina the Younger. I was like, oh. I feel like that's so interesting because whenever you talked about her, you sounded really excited about her. So the thing is, I had gone into this whole thing with preconceived notions about her because a lot of her story I knew from the ancient sources and the way in which she was portrayed kind of made me feel like, what kind of awful woman was she? Because she comes off being like the wicked mother, the wicked stepmother, the grasping woman who will bang anyone for a bit of power. You know, they make her out to be this really cruel, capricious, scheming, incestuous was harpy of a woman and someone who's also desperate to wield power but doesn't realize that like the ways in which she's going to wield it or the son that she's going to put on the throne are going to turn into like such a monster and to me I was like that is just awful and then I started reading female historians who were also looking at Agrippina's life and I started getting a better grounding on what it was like to be a woman in that time and my entire view of her changed. So Jenny and I have talked many times about being history nerds, and I have always loved the really strong female characters in history who are going to change the world by doing the right thing. So you've got Agrippina the Elder who's standing up to Tiberius, and even if it means exile, she's going to shout the heavens down and get justice for her family. You've got Boudicca who goes out and leads an army against Rome to avenge her daughters and everything that happened to her. Yeah, very straightforward. Very straightforward heroines who have a very strong role and are always sort of on the side of right. Like when I was doing Greek theater, like protest theater, I always loved Antigone because she is so right. But the thing about that is she's also so unmovable. Antigone dies for her belief. Agrippina the Elder dies for her belief. Agrippina the Younger doesn't. She actually has to work within a broken system in ways in which it's difficult for you to comprehend working in order to set the empire on a straight course when other people around her would see it flounder. Sometimes I have this very specific idea of what I want female empowerment to look like, and that's why Agrippina can be so frustrating sometimes. I think that there's something so fascinating to me in here about what we want our heroines to be like. We want them to be powerful women who speak up and speak truth to power and who are openly defiant and who lead armies into battle. And sometimes the strong woman doesn't look like that because she doesn't have those opportunities and she doesn't have those options. So she has to make choices that don't look good to the modern eye. Like we don't want to see a heroine sleeping her way to the top and we don't want to see a heroine poisoning her husband. We want to see them morally unambiguous so that we can wholeheartedly love them. Like a hero is allowed to have negative parts of his story and sometimes 
our heroines are expected to be these paragons. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things about Agrippina. You know, she has always come through history as being more of a villain than a heroine. And actually, she's definitely a dark heroine. I wouldn't I wouldn't call her a hero in any sense of the word. Yeah, I don't think we want to set ourselves up as Agrippina apologists, you know? No, we're definitely not Agrippina apologists. She did a lot of bad shit. But she also was working in a society where she had a child very young. She was married at 13 to a guy who was known to be an alcoholic, very abusive. We don't know what her life with him was like because Agrippina wrote her memoirs. But her memoirs are lost to history. So there are so many things she could have told us about that time period that we will never know. It's such a huge loss. A marriage to a wealthy and powerful man meant that she could keep herself and her son safe from exile and poverty. And Agrippina never wanted to go back to exile or poverty. And in this world, if you were not attached to a powerful man, then you were in danger. If you had a husband and you were not as wealthy, you better hope he was strong and had the ability to protect you and your children. I feel like when you tell me these stories about grasping women who are grasping at power, the alternative to grasping for power is not having any agency at all. Your fate was so tied to who you were married to and marrying the emperor, it made you a target, but it also made you invulnerable in certain ways. Exactly. And a marriage to her uncle meant that she finally had the stability and the power to carve a path for her son to one day rule the empire. And that gave her a lot of longevity because more than that, it allowed her to rule first off at her uncle's side as empress and blaze a trail for a woman having a more equal say with the emperor. And it ushered in changes and reforms as no woman had ever done before. Her entire life and the things she did were totally groundbreaking. Agrippina made me really fascinated in how actually politics worked in the back channel and how women were making change that we never get to see in the history books because that part of history is lost to us because it wasn't facing down the Roman army on the field. Yeah, because it wasn't direct and right out in the open because women were not supposed to have a direct and open role in politics. So being in the back channel was basically the role that was allowed them in that society. Yeah. And I mean, I just think it's one of those things when I was doing the research where I was like, I am a well-educated person. I felt like I should not have such a toxic lens about this. Like I should have been able to look at her more complicatedly. And I just couldn't until I started really reading a lot more widely and challenging the ancient sources and just giving her a chance to be her own character and her own person. When I was doing this episode in the beginning, I was like, oh, I'm going to have to spend all this time with Agrippina. And she's just the worst. Then I started writing it and I was texting Jenny constantly. I was like, did you know Agrippina ate poison because she was afraid people were going to poison her? Did you know like that she did all of these cool things. One of the things I love about my relationship with Jen is that she's my friend who will periodically text me random Agrippina facts. And all of a sudden I was like, yeah, she wasn't the best, but she was making a decent go of handling a shit situation. When I met Agrippina, it was while I was researching the Locusta episode and Locusta the Poisoner had an extremely colorful life. And I felt like Agrippina was also, she was one of those people kind of in Locusta's orbit who also had an extremely colorful life. And I guess I didn't see her with this really strong villainous lens because I was already working on this real arch villainous, I guess you could call her. Well, Lacosta was much more like she would have been what we call a serial killer in today's day and age. It was much more clear what she was. So yeah, I kind of wanted to just like have a minute to talk about Agrippina because she does get painted with this really shit stained brush in the ancient sources. Agrippina becomes this cautionary tale for men in the ancient world. Beware powerful women because they'll do you 
you in and take your power. Just look at what happened to Claudius. Powerful women like Agrippina don't make good wives. They don't produce good children. Look at Nero. If she'd spent more time with Nero, then he would have been a better ruler. Or if she'd spent less time with Nero and didn't have that weird relationship, he'd be a better ruler. There was no way she could win in this situation. I mean, and isn't that something that plays out in modern times too? I suggest that if you want to find out more about Agrippina's life, you look into Emma Southern's Agrippina, Empress, Exile, Hustler, and Whore, and Annalise Friesenbrook's The First Ladies of Rome. They're both brilliant contemporary sources that look at Agrippina very complexly and maybe make you change your mind a little bit. Uh, and I guess, Jenny, that's how I sort of now have a crush on Agrippina. I mean, don't we all have a crush on Agrippina? Let's get back to our story, because while Agrippina was pretty amazing, she also did some pretty shit things. And, you know, it's not surprising she did, because no one gets to rule the world without making some shitty calls and enemies. <clears throat> Julius Caesar. We'll get to him. So Jenny, please take us back to the story. Okay, moving on. Agrippina was a breath of fresh air after Messalina. Messalina had been made a Demnatio Memoriae, but it was going to take more than just striking her images off the statues and records to heal the Roman psyche. Agrippina was 32 when she married Claudius, no longer a young girl, twice widowed, a mother and now a stepmother, and fully versed in the tumultuous world of politics. In short, she was exactly what Claudius needed. On January 1st, which was her wedding day, okay, maybe not that quickly, but maybe that quickly. It might have been that quickly. Maybe it was a wedding present. Totally could have been a wedding present. Agrippina began consolidating her power and turning Claudius's core into something she could work with. She began neutralizing or eliminating people who she saw as a threat to her rule, starting with her rival for Claudius's affections, her former sister-in-law, Lalia Paulina. According to Tacitus, quote, Agrippina, who was terrible in her hatred and detested Lalia for having competed with her for the emperor's hand, planned an accusation through an informer who was to tax Lalia with having consulted astrologers and magicians and the image of the Clarion Apollo, which I just sounds like she was practicing the religion that everybody practiced. What is this? So what I think Tacitus is saying here is that Lalia Paulina went to the image of, you know, the temple or the whatever of Clarion Apollo. And she was like, the emperor is going to marry his niece. And that's not a good thing. If you could just make it so the emperor marries me and maybe Agrippina gets hit by a plague because Apollo was the god of prophecy and also plagues thing to think about. So what I'm thinking was happening here is she was accused of praying for something bad to happen to Agrippina. Oh, okay. Or maybe Agrippina and Claudius, because that would have been like treason, right? That would have been treason, but if this accusation happened after Agrippina was empress, which is what I'm suspecting it did, then praying for ill will for the empress would also be considered treasonous. So upon this, Claudius, without hearing the accused, told the Senate that she had mischievous designs on the state and must have the means of crime taken from her. Consequently, her property should be confiscated and she herself banished from Italy. Thus, out of immense wealth, only five million sesterces were left to the exile. And how much is a sesterce worth? I'm not sure, but five million was still a lot of money. Right. So Lalia was left with only a small fortune. Calpurnia, too, a lady of high rank, was ruined simply because the emperor had praised her beauty in a casual remark without any passion for her. And so Agrippina's resentment at Calpurnia stopped short of extreme vengeance. A tribune was dispatched to Lalia, who was to force her to suicide. So as you can see from this quote, Agrippina is accused of ruining two women because they were her rivals. And that's probably true. 
true. It sounds kind of plausible. Agrippina couldn't have these two women knocking around court and possibly catching Claudius's eye, especially if the emperor started thinking about replacing his new empress. And this was actually something that Claudius got quite a lot when it came to his wives. He was prone to buyer's remorse, so the fear wasn't unfounded. But there are other things to consider. First, Lalia Paulina and Agrippina had crossed paths before, when her brother had been emperor, and who knows what those encounters had been like. Caligula had divorced the fabulously wealthy Lalia Paulina and allowed her to live, which was actually kind of out of character for him. What must Lalia Paulina have been like as a sister-in-law? Was there something beyond Claudius's attentions that made her a rival for Agrippina? Lalia Paulina had been empress once, and she had an exceptional background and power amongst the Roman aristocracy. It was possible that she was actually another woman very effectively working the back channel, and that is truly why Agrippina feared her. Not her beauty or wealth, but her ability to play the Game of Thrones. In addition to getting rid of romantic and political rivals, Agrippina also made it her business to get rid of anyone at court who was still a fan of Messalina, which just makes good sense. She cleaned house and made sure that anyone who still had sympathy for the previous empress disappeared pretty quickly. The Gilded Nipple Club had to go. (laughs) Because Agrippina had plans, and one of those plans was getting her son on the throne. And people who wanted to push the agenda of Messalina's children had to go. And by go, we mean exile, assassination, execution, a quiet retirement to the country where you never speak of anything again or else. That would be getting off lightly. So Claudius, meanwhile, heaped Agrippina with honors. He had new coins minted to celebrate their marriage. And in contrast to every other coin, this one showed both Claudius and Agrippina on the front of the coin. They were face to face. Sometimes their faces even overlapped. This was meant to symbolize that they were ruling together as a unit. And to say this is unprecedented is such an understatement. No other emperor had put his wife on the front of a coin, let alone in such a position that would allow others to believe that she was a co-ruler. I mean, remember, these coins went far and wide across the empire. Yeah, they were kind of like propaganda. Everyone at every stage of society would handle and see these coins. So this is like a way that they would see the emperor's face and likeness every day. So he'd really care about how he was represented on those coins. And he chose to represent himself as a co-ruler with his wife, which is really interesting. I don't know if he would have called it co-ruler, but that's how it's come down. Agrippina and Claudius were a team. Claudius was scholarly and scheming, the kind of person who wanted to know how every part of his empire worked. Very much the Tyrion Lannister of our story. And Agrippina? Agrippina was the fixer, the person who could interact with senators and get them on side and push through Claudius's agenda, as well as her own agenda. Agrippina was the political strong arm that helped secure Claudius's reign. With her at his side, the coup attempts stopped. The senators realized that they would have to get down to work and actually work with the emperor. What a novel idea. Everything changed, and this is sort of the period where Claudius gained a reputation for being a good emperor. It happened after he married Agrippina. Yes, he had his major conquest of Britain while he was married to Messalina, but this is where he became an emperor who did a lot of good things for the people. After the nightmare of Caligula's reign and the Purges and neglect of Tiberius, Claudius's reign was a breath of fresh air. It showed that a strong imperial family, a coherent emperor and empress, could actually get shit done. Shit that involved improving the infrastructure and lives of the people rather than building giant pleasure barges or statues of yourself, <coughs> Caligula, or maybe hiding out in the Neverland Ranch and having extremely horrible pedophilic sex like Tiberius. 
We're never going back. We're not going back there. We're never going back there, Jen. Rise and fall of little boots, not for the faint of heart. According to Dio, once Agrippina became empress, she was the real power behind the throne. Quote, No one attempted in any way to check Agrippina. Indeed, she had more power than Claudius himself and used to greet in public all who desired it, a fact that was entered in the records, which was groundbreaking because women in ancient Rome were not supposed to be openly political. Yeah, and they weren't supposed to be in the records. <laughs> you know, the best kind of woman was neither seen nor heard, and nobody knew her name. Agrippina modeled herself after her great-grandmother Livia, the first empress of Rome. She was analytical, measured, and not prone to flights of passion or excess or random orgies like Messalina. Essentially, after the giant sex party of Messalina's tenure, it was Agrippina's job to remind people that the empress of Rome was a badass powerhouse who could shape the empire with a few well-chosen words, and Agrippina went to work, getting herself some powerful allies in Claudius's court, including Pallas, one of Claudius's trusted freedmen, and he was the one who supported her in the beauty contest, right? Yes, he was. He really backed the right horse. She also began lobbying for the return of Seneca from exile. Seneca had been exiled with Agrippina's sister, Lavilla, and the influential Stoic was part of Agrippina's grand plan to school her son to rule the empire. It took years, but eventually she did get Seneca recalled to court where he took on the job of Nero's tutor. This was what Agrippina excelled at, finding talented people and making their careers, shoring up her position by keeping them loyal to her and in her debt. It was an exceedingly good plan that made for a very loyal court. Unlike the viper's nest that had swirled around the emperor and empress in the early days of Claudius's reign, she also got back the rights she'd had during the early days of Caligula's reign. She had her own carriages and lictors and the rights of the Vestal Virgins, so she had the really good seats in the Colosseum, and you were not allowed to involve her in a tickle fight. Don't do it. You will lose your fingers. In other words, she was untouchable, and then Claudius did the unthinkable. He gave Agrippina the title of Augusta. Only two women have been granted this title since the start of the empire. Both have been given the title posthumously. The first was Livia, the first wife of the Emperor Augustus and Agrippina's great-grandmother and role model. The second was Antonia, Claudius's mother and Agrippina's grandmother, because this family tree is still a snake eating its own tail. Claudius had rejected giving his wife Messalina the title of Augusta, even though the Senate voted to give it to her after the birth of Britannicus. So Agrippina was the first living empress to have this title, and it was looking very likely that her son, Nero, would edge out Britannicus for the throne. With Agrippina and Nero's stars on the rise and the love of the empire behind them, Claudius did something else to honor his wife. He was not done honoring his wife. He was not done. Agrippina asked Claudius to make her birth city into a retired soldier's colony. And I need to explain this a little bit. Agrippina, as we talked about in Germanicus the Manicus, was born while Germanicus was on a campaign in Germany. So she went to her husband and said, Oh, lovely darling husband, Claudius, would you do me a solid and make my birth city a client city? And while you're at it, could we send some retired soldiers there? You know, people who might have served with my dad who might be loyal to me and, you know, maybe need a break. And Claudius said, yeah. It would have been a boon to the soldiers giving them their own colony, right? It absolutely would have been a boom to the soldiers and it would have reminded the soldiers who she was and who her father was. So Agrippina was incredibly popular because her father had been the epic war hero Germanicus. So everyone who was of her father's age, the generation above her, would be looking at her with gratitude. But the people who were her age and a little bit younger would be looking at the new empress and thinking she cares about the veterans and the people who are serving for her. And that's a powerful message to send out. Yeah. 
And it's also a really powerful message to have the troops on your side, because that can really make or break you as as a leader in ancient Rome. And if you think about what Messalina was missing when she had her coup against Claudius, she didn't have the soldiers behind her. Claudius had them. Right. It's what makes her coup attempt with Silius, if it actually happened the way it's told to us, kind of nonsensical, because it's like, what's going to happen after she marries Silius? Does she have an army at her back that's going to make sure that that coup attempt goes through? No. So it's not going to end well. So Claudius allowed a retired soldier's colony in Germany to be named after his wife, and it became a client state that had her as its patron and was loyal to her. The colony was called Colonia Claudia Ara Agrippinensis, or Agrippinensium, and the people from the colony were called... Are you going to say it? No, I want you to say it, Jenny. <laughs> She's going to make me say it. They were called Agrippinuses. They were. And I'm not kidding here. I'm looking at this word. The only way you could pronounce it that I know of is Agrippinuses. And maybe I'm pronouncing it wrong. And if you speak Latin, you'll probably laugh at me on Twitter. But they were called Agrippinuses. <laughs> and we're 12 years old. Agrippina had an entire colony that called themselves after her. I mean, what an ego boost. She had a whole colony of Agrippinuses who just loved and worshipped her. And she hadn't even had to do anything like conquer Germany. No, that's a great point. <laughs> Germanicus got all his Germanopenuses by conquering places. <laughs> So anyway, in this colony, they had statues of Agrippina, and we know a lot about Agrippina's influence because of the stuff that remains in the client states. Throughout the empire, there were statues, there were coins, and all sorts of things that came down to us through the ages. Thing is, Colonia Claudia Ara Agrippinensis still stands to this day. The name has thankfully shortened a little bit over the years, first to the colony and then to Cologne. That's right. Agrippina is the reason we have Cologne. Have you been to Cologne, Jen? I've never been. And now I'm desperate to go and see if I can find like some Agrippina stuff. Yeah, I've been to Cologne and it's absolutely beautiful. And I did not know about the Agrippinuses when I went to Cologne. Now that I do, I want to seek some out. <laughs> I feel like she would totally approve. Maybe one day we'll take a trip there. In 50 AD, just a year after their marriage, Agrippina crossed off the biggest item on her to-do list. She got Claudius to formally adopt Nero as his stepson and successor. Nero was also engaged to Claudius's daughter and his stepsister, Octavia. Claudius had started a war in Britain in 43 AD. So he was married to Messalina when he started this war, right? Yes. Eight years later, in 51 AD, or by the time he had his triumph for it, he was married to Agrippina, just to set the stage. Caratacus, a king of the British resistance, was captured by the Romans and brought before Claudius in a triumph. At this event, Claudius and Agrippina each sat on their own dais. And this was something unheard of in the ancient world. Normally, a wife would be expected to sit at her husband's side or on a smaller dais. And this is what happened when the emperor and empress of Rome met Caratacus. I've left it in Tacitus's own words because it's so fascinating. And because Caratacus, who I suspect will be talking a lot more about in season three, had the most baller quote of anyone I've come across this season. Quote, Caratacus was put in chains and delivered up to the conquerors nine years after the beginning of the war in Britain. His fame had spread thence and traveled to the neighboring islands and provinces and was actually celebrated in Italy. All were eager to see the great man. I kind of feel like Caratacus was more popular than Claudius at this point. I don't know. I feel like he would have been more infamous. I don't know how popular he would have been. There was a real danger that this sort of person who said a big F you to the emperor could come through and march on your land and kill 
kill you. That did happen in the ancient world. So I don't know exactly his popularity, but it's possible. Anyway, even in Rome, the name of Caratacus was no obscure one. And the emperor, while he exalted his own glory, enhanced the renown of the vanquished. The people were summoned as to a grand spectacle. The praetorian cohorts were drawn up under arms in the plain in front of their camp. Then came a procession of the royal vassals and the ornaments and neck chains and the spoils which the king had won in wars with other tribes were displayed. Next were to be seen his brothers, his wife, and daughter. Last of all, Caratacus himself. All the rest stooped in their fear to abject supplication. Not so the king, who neither by humble look nor speech sought compassion. When he was set before the emperor's tribunal, he spoke as follows. Brace yourselves, you guys. Had my moderation in prosperity been equal to my noble birth and fortune, I should have entered this city as your friend rather than as your captive, and you would not have disdained to receive, under a treaty of peace, a king descended from illustrious ancestors and ruling many nations. My present lot is as glorious to you as it is degrading to myself. I had men and horses, arms and wealth. What wonder if I parted with them reluctantly? If you Romans choose to lord it over the world, does it follow that the world is to accept slavery? Were I to have been at once delivered up as a prisoner, neither my fall nor your triumph would have become famous. My punishment would have been followed by oblivion, whereas if you save my life, I shall be an everlasting memorial of your clemency. I mean, this is just such a smart speech. Mic drop! Yeah. Upon this, the emperor granted pardon to Caratacus, to his wife, and also to his brothers, because if he didn't, he would look like an asshole. Released from their bonds, they did homage also to Agrippina, who sat near, conspicuous on another throne, in the same language of praise and gratitude. He's basically just reproducing his whole speech for her, right? Yeah. It was indeed a novelty, quite alien to ancient manners, for a woman to sit in front of Roman standards. In fact, Agrippina boasted that she was herself a partner in the empire which her ancestors had won. Claudius grants a pardon to Caratacus after Caratacus makes one of the most insanely brilliant speeches I've read in the last six months. And after Claudius grants Caratacus his pardon, Caratacus crosses over to Agrippina's little platform, her looking all baller, sitting in front of some Roman standards, which never happened, and makes a speech to her addressing her as an equal. And all of this is taking place in front of the Roman public. Everything is being written down to be shared far and wide because Caratacus's infamy has spread across the empire. This is ancient Rome's version of a trial of the century, a moment of pure reality TV. This couldn't have been the image Claudius wanted to have shared across the empire. Or could it? Maybe Claudius was secretly delighted with his new empress, a fierce woman who would be called a dux femina or woman general. And dux femina wasn't meant as a compliment, although we at Ancient History Fangirl know it is one. Yeah, sounds like a compliment to me. It does to me too. And Dux Femina, I came across this in Annalise Frasenbrook's book, The First Ladies of Rome. And she describes it as, quote, an oxymoron of a title that implied an unnatural combination of male and female characteristics. And she went on, I'm paraphrasing from what she was talking about when she talked about other Dux Feminas. The ones that she compared Agrippina to were other women who'd sort of been given that title by the Roman public. It had been heaped upon some of the most accomplished women of ancient Rome, including Plancina, Piso's infamous wife who was implicated in the poisoning of Germanicus. She had attended military drills while her husband was governor of Syria. Fulvia, who guys, oh my god, I can't wait to tell you her story. She was Mark Antony's wife who marshaled his troops on his behalf on the plains of Perugia and she took the tongue of a very famous orator and stabbed it through with a golden pin. 
There was also Caligula's wife, Saisonia, who rode out to inspect the troops with her husband dressed in a helmet, a cloak, and a shield. That sounds quite militaristic to me. So the Dux Femina title was basically given to women who did something with the military. Absolutely. And of course, I saved one of my favorite ones for last, but Agrippina's own mother was a badass who had famously fought with the Emperor Tiberius and at one point in time saved Germanicus's army when they needed to uh, beat a hasty retreat in Germania. Yeah, we tell that story in Germanicus the Manicus. We do tell that story and it's really good. So yeah, Dux Femina might have been an insult, but without these women, Rome would have had some very hard times. So in my opinion, at least, Agrippina was in some very good company. I mean, I definitely agree. Agrippina also famously quarreled with Claudius's trusted freedman, Narcissus. Narcissus had a lot of influence over Claudius. He'd actually persuaded Claudius to have Messalina executed, and you could see why he made Agrippina twitchy. Agrippina didn't like the power that Narcissus had over Claudius, and she did everything she could to swipe away at his influence over her husband. All this came to a head as Narcissus was overseeing the construction of a tunnel through a mountain in central Italy that was connecting Lake Fusinus and the river Lyris. The project was over budget and running late, and on what should have been Narcissus's triumphant moment, tragedy struck. According to Suetonius, quote, the tunneling of the mountain between Lake Fusinus and the River Lyris had been achieved. In order that the impressive character of the work might be viewed by a larger number of visitors, a naval battle was arranged upon the lake itself on the model of an earlier spectacle given by Augustus. Claudius equipped triremes, quadriremes, and 19,000 combatants. The lists he surrounded with rafts so as to leave no unauthorized points of escape, but reserved space enough in the center to display the vigor of the rowing, the arts of the helmsmen, the impetus of the galleys, and the usual incidents of an engagement. On the rafts were stationed companies and squadrons of the Praetorian cohorts covered by a breastwork from which to operate their catapults and ballistae. The rest of the lake was occupied by marines with decked vessels. He and Agrippina presided, the one in a gorgeous military cloak, the other, not far distant, in a Greek mantle of cloth of gold. Can we just, like, stop for a minute and talk about Agrippina's cloth of gold cloak. Please, can we do that? <laughs> I know. I, I'm just going to have to like girl out for a minute. This was a Greek men's cloak made of a cloth of gold. Wearing it was just such a badass move. Agrippina had truly embraced her role as Dux Femina in this moment, and she chose to wear something so unlike what other empresses before her would have worn to this type of event. I can't imagine Messalina or Lalia Paulina would go in being like, I'm going to wear a Greek mantle of cloth of gold. Men's cloak. This is a short cloak that would have been worn in battle, right? That's how I took it, yeah. Yeah, that's what it seems to be. It's a little bit hard to tell, but that's the impression I got. And I also think this is kind of a jab at Narcissus, isn't it? It's totally an F you to Narcissus. She rocks up in this cloak ready to do battle. This is her war paint. This is her way of throwing down that gauntlet and being like, let's go. Emma Southern in Agrippina, Empress Exile, Hustler Whore, picks up the story. Quote, thousands showed up because there wasn't much else to do but watch people die in Italy. <laughs> I love how she says this. Claudius and Agrippina set up a banquet situation by the tunnel entrance so they could dine and enjoy a close-up of the tunnels. Civil engineering was very exciting, apparently. The show had the same ending planned. The gates open, the waters drain, and everyone applauds. The waters started rushing out, leading to cheers that quickly turned to screams as it became clear that the tunnel was now too deep and was being overwhelmed by the torrent of water rushing into it. The torrent overflowed and the the flood swept everything in its way into near oblivion, which included Claudius and Agrippina and their dining companions who were almost drowned. Agrippina saw the whole spectacular disaster as an opportunity to undermine her rival. She openly accused Narcissus of deliberately mismanaging the project, skimming money off 
the top for himself and hiring incompetent contractors. Narcissus effectively retorted with the inevitable response of defensive men and he called her a whore and a bitch. Again, the empire's business became part of the personal squabbling of the emperor's court. It was a huge mess for Narcissus and just what Agrippina needed to continue to drive a wedge between him and Claudius. And it also foreshadows something very important about Agrippina. She could swim. This would have been really rare for women in ancient Rome, possibly because in exile, she had nothing to do but swim in the waters around Pontus. But it was this ability that likely saved her life time and again. This is the first place where I saw this in my research, where it became really clear that she could swim. It becomes really important later. It does. And being someone who grew up as a competitive swimmer, yeah, you got to know how to swim. You don't know when you're going to need that or not. So as part of her feud with Narcissus, Agrippina had unfinished business with her former sister-in-law, Nero's aunt, Lepida. Lepida was the mother of the former Empress Messalina because if your brain doesn't hurt thinking about how interconnected all of these people are, then I haven't done my job. And Lepida was BFFs with Narcissus. Her friendship with Narcissus meant that Lepida was a problem. Lepida had taken care of Nero while Agrippina was in exile, and she was still close with Nero, maybe because of that time they spent together, or maybe she was just the fun on, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe she was the one who slipped him the ancient Roman version of chocolate bars. Right. She was the one who let him come over and play PlayStation till like one in the morning. Totally. And yes, we realized they didn't have PlayStation in ancient Rome. When I had a fun on in my childhood, that's what she did. It was actually Nintendo. It was Super Mario Brothers. We could play that as long as we wanted and have cream soda, which was a big deal to me at like the age of 12. See, totally different. I could have lots of sweets. And then my fun on was like really crafty. So like I made a basket with her or a hat. Yeah, that was my idea of fun. That's super fun. Anyway, so maybe she was the fun aunt. There was maybe crafting and games. I don't know. But she had influence over Nero. And theoretically, she was ideally placed to team up with Narcissus and turn Nero against his own mother. And this could not be allowed. So this is how Agrippina got rid of her competition for Nero's affections, according to Suetonius. Quote, she destroyed Lepida on a feminine quarrel, for Lepida regarded her family distinctions as equal to those of the princess. In looks, age, and fortune, there was little between the pair. And since each was as unchaste... Wait a minute. <laughs> What's that smell? It's the toxic masculinity wafting off the page again. <laughs> Open up the windows. Air it out, Jenny. I know. I need to set up my toxic masculinity smoke alarm. <laughs> You need to get that alarm going. I need to open a window and air this fucker out. Okay, so as each was as unchaste, as disreputable, and as violent as the other, their competition in the vices was not less keen than in such advantages as they had received. What the fuck is this? What does this even mean? It means that they were both women who had a shitty reputation, who liked to have free sexual agency, who were definitely people who thought outside of the box. They were women who were the bosses of themselves. I think let's boil it down. Damn straight. But the fiercest struggle was on the question whether the dominant influence with Nero was to be his aunt or his mother, for Lepida was endeavoring to captivate his youthful mind by a smooth tongue and an open hand and maybe some late night Nintendo sessions, I don't know, or basket weaving. While on the other side, Agrippina stood grim and menacing, capable of presenting her son with an empire, but not of tolerating him as emperor. So Lepida was definitely the good cop and Agrippina was the bad cop here. However, the charges preferred were that Lepida had practiced 
practiced by magic against the life of the emperor's consort, and by her neglect to coerce her regiments of slaves in Calabria, was threatening the peace of Italy. On these grounds, the death sentence was pronounced in spite of the determined opposition of Narcissus. So here again, we see the charges of magic. This would be like trying to cast a spell on Queen Elizabeth to give her bad health. It would just be me, number one. And number two, it's not going to happen. But you could kind of see it as like maybe a death threat if you're desperate to get someone exiled and take their fortune. And I think that's what's going on here. The other thing here is that Lepida was also charged for allowing her slaves to run riot in Calabria. This is super important because the Third Servile War, or the Spartacus Revolt, which we'll get to next season, was still not a distant memory. That had ended in 71 BC. Just about 120 years ago, fear of another slave revolt was very real, so this charge was something the aristocracy would have taken very seriously. With these charges, Agrippina rid herself of the troublesome Lepida and once again was able to give Narcissus the finger. While this was going on, little Nero, who was so cute when he was little, was growing into Nero neckbeard because it is literally impossible to mention Nero's name and not bring up the neckbeard. It's, you cannot unsee the neckbeard. Around 53 (laughs) AD, around the time Nero married his stepsister at the age of 16, Claudius started having buyer's remorse. Yeah, he was known for his buyer's remorse. He drove that car off a lot and was like, you know what, I think I might have liked the red one better. I don't think I want to be locked into a three-year lease. He had commitment issues, didn't he? He was not exactly sold on this Agrippina Nero package. I mean, maybe it was a case of the grass being greener, or maybe it was a case of Claudius deciding that wife number four was just as awful as the rest of his wives. It's impossible to know exactly what started Claudius's change of heart. Maybe it was seeing his son Britannicus growing into a fine young man that made the emperor think there was another option. And that option didn't involve turning his empire over to Nero. According to Suetonius, quote, Towards the end of his life, Claudius had shown some plain signs of repentance for his marriage with Agrippina and his adoption of Nero. For when his freedmen expressed their approval of a trial in which he had the day before condemned a woman for adultery, he declared that it had been his destiny also to have wives who were all unchaste but not unpunished. And shortly afterwards, meeting Britannicus, he hugged him close and urged him to grow up and receive from his father an account of all that he had done, adding in Greek, he who dealt the wound will heal it. When he expressed his intention of giving Britannicus the gown of manhood, since his stature justified it, though he was still young and immature, he added, the Roman people may at last have a genuine Caesar. I think there's a little clue in here about why Claudius would have lost his excitement about the marriage to Agrippina because he mentions adultery. Was Agrippina linked to other people when she was married to Claudius? Agrippina definitely had lovers and Claudius definitely had lovers. But it doesn't surprise me that Claudius is starting to get word that yet another one of his wives is unfaithful. Then I also think that whether or not Messalina was sleeping with everyone in Rome, those were the rumors that circulated. And that was Claudius being made a cuckold over and over and over again. So the idea that Agrippina was now sleeping around on him, I can just imagine how upset he would be because Messalina really made him look like an idiot when she married someone else. It almost doesn't matter if it's true or not. The damage is the same. It would piss him off. Especially if in the beginning they were ruling quite well together and they were making such a good pair. And then all of a sudden to be embarrassed again in that same fashion, I could see how that would be upsetting. Like really, Agrippina, you can't just keep it in the family. Come on. 
<laughs> I think the problem is she kept it in the family for too long. <laughs> right. I mean, you start to just really want to get outside of the family. All those agripenises. She has a whole colony. She has a whole colony she could be just hanging out with. Anyway, let's get back to our story, Jenny. So Claudius is making some vague and undependable announcements to Britannicus about making him emperor after all. But you can clearly see him wavering here. This change of heart would not do. Agrippina sprang into action and contacted her good friend, Lacusta the Poisoner. And if you haven't listened to our episode on Lacusta the Poisoner, then we highly recommend you give it a listen. And not just because this is my favorite episode, but because it's really, really fascinating and it gives you a good taste, no pun intended, of the poisons in the ancient world. You don't want a taste of the poisons in the ancient world. No, you don't. We tell you several times throughout the episode, do not try to make these poisons or taste them. It's also a really brilliant look at Lacusta, who was an infamous poisoner to the aristocracy. So give yourself a treat when you're waiting for our next episode to drop and go listen to it. So back to our current story, because we just cannot stop going off in sidetracks. We can't stop recommending other episodes to you. What even are we doing? We're trying to get through a story here. Locusta was a professional poisoner who served exclusively aristocratic clients. At the moment she was in jail, not for the first time for poisoning people because Locusta is gonna Locusta. Agrippina had her hauled out of jail and the two women decided on a strategy to poison Claudius before he could officially switch the succession from Nero back to Britannicus. With their Claudius exit strategy firmly in place, Agrippina waited for Claudius's BF Narcissus to suddenly get really sick and have to leave town for his own health, and we strongly suspect Locusta had a hand in this. Don't eat the blueberry pancakes. Stay away from the blueberries. Then, Agrippina planned a very special dinner. Claudius was a giant fan of blueberry pancakes. I mean mushrooms. Agrippina made sure they were served at this dinner, except there was poison in the mushrooms. Some historians claim Agrippina put the poison in herself. Either way, Locusta would have whipped this up. Claudius became violently ill, but he wasn't quite dead yet. When a doctor put a feather down the emperor's throat, most likely to make him finish throwing up whatever was making him sick, there was poison on the feather too, and it was this that ended Claudius's life. Claudius died on the 13th of October, 54 AD at the age of 63. He had ruled Rome for 13 years. He had conquered Britain. He had held the empire together after the incredibly turbulent rule of Caligula. He wasn't perfect. He definitely had his weaknesses, but he had done, on the whole, a good job. On the same day Claudius died, at the age of 17, Nero became emperor. For the first few years of his reign, he was controlled by his mother and the court she had carefully structured around him. He relied on Agrippina and his advisors, Seneca and the Praetorian prefect, the coins minted during Nero's first year feature him and his mother face-to-face on the front of the coin with their noses touching. This made it very clear who was running the show and also looked a little bit like they were about to make out, which is awkward. Totally. We will put the images in the show notes. Right from the start, not everyone was happy with how closely Agrippina held the reins. For instance, Seneca wrote his own version of the tragedy of Medea, specifically for Nero. It was the kind of version that was meant to be read and not performed, which is really important. For those of you who are not familiar with Medea, it is the story of a woman who killed her own children to get back at her chodebag husband, Jason of Argonauts fame. Who threw her over for another woman named Glauke because he was a chodebag. But anyway, we digress. We sort of talked about this in our Amazons episode, didn't we? It was also in Locusta the Poisoner because we talk about the um, poison cloak that Medea sent to Glauke. So he wrote this play and if this wasn't Seneca's subtle dig at allowing a woman, even your mother, to have power and agency over you, then I would be shocked. 
Because even early on, men who owed everything to Agrippina were already sowing the seeds of discontent between mother and son. Seneca did owe everything to Agrippina because she'd brought him back from exile. She did, and she could have left him there. I mean, this is a guy who was accused of boning her sister. Her sister gets murdered in exile, but somehow Seneca doesn't. Hmm, think about that. Well, I mean, to be fair, Lavilla was definitely a threat. Seneca, maybe. Well, Lavilla was a threat to Messalina. And Claudius. And Claudius. Agrippina was involved in all aspects of Nero's rule. She would frequently travel with him in his litter, and this made people talk. Rumors were going around about incest between the two. Although the idea of Agrippina banging her son while they were carried through the streets of Rome is to me so brazen and so insane that it's hilarious. Yeah, let's break that down for a second. I can't remember which ancient source I came across this, but there was a comment, an overture made to the fact that when Nero would get out of from like riding in the litter with his mother, he would have stains on his clothes and they'd be all disarrayed. And I'm kind of like, are you saying that Nero had... Jizz. Let's just say jizz. Let's just say jizz. I'm sorry, guys. We've totally, we had to go there. We know you're all thinking it. We were all thinking that. Is that what you're suggesting? That he had that all over him because they were banging in a litter? Like, to me, that doesn't make sense. And it doesn't make sense because that isn't the kind of sexual operative that Agrippina was. Well, to be fair, Agrippina had had sex with her uncle and, if you believe the rumors, with her brother. And her sister's widower. Right. So it isn't entirely out of character, I suppose you could say. So what would it look like if she actually was banging her son? I think if she actually was banging her son, she would be doing it in private. She would be doing it as an absolute means to control him. I mean, she was in her late 30s. That girl had a nice bed. She was not going to be spending her time doing it on a litter on the backs of people carrying them through the streets. It was not going to happen. Right. Bear in mind, these litters were like, they were carried on poles by teams of slaves, right? So there would be people involved in the carrying of the litter. And also, it would just be rocking so much. Like, why would you do that when you have a perfectly good bed? Maybe for the thrill? Nero was pretty shameless, but the thing about Agrippina was she was very, very strategic about who she had sex with. According to Annalise Friesenbrook, quote, Agrippina had traded sex to gratify her love of politics. In other words, she had sex, quote, like a man, using it purely as a means to an end, just as her great-grandfather Augustus was said to have done during his campaign against the profligate Antony, tapping up the wives of his enemies to secure information against them. I love how she puts that tapping up the wives of his enemies. She's calling back channel sex, which is a power that lots of women used in the ancient world, having sex like a man. That is interesting to me because I feel like having sex as a means to gain power or influence is a thing that we associate with women, especially women in the ancient world. This is a trope that continues to the present day too. Anytime a woman is accused of sleeping her way to the top or that misogynistic language, here it's associated with having sex like a man. And we do run into men who do this in ancient history. Like for example, Sejanus did it, Lepidus did it, who was um, Caligula's best friend who conspired with his sisters. We're going to get to him. Caesar did it. Caesar and Augustus did it. Apparently, Augustus took a hint from the old man and did that too, which is a thing I'm just learning now with this quote. But yeah, you do see guys doing it, but it's weird that you would say, oh, it's sex like a man. And the only reason I could think of that it's called that is because men are allowed to have agency in their sex lives and women aren't. Yeah. So let's recap. If Agrippina was having sex with her son, this family, 
Ugh. She was definitely doing it in private as a means to control Nero. To me, this whole idea smacks the ancient sources just trying to make Agrippina look wicked and just discount her. Yeah, because this is definitely a thing that people said to discredit people. Exactly. However, it does crop up in Tacitus. So I think it was really important to mention this in the story. It's also said, and I absolutely believe this, that Nero had a mistress who looked like his mother. Yeah. So that is a really interesting data point here. Nero apparently had a mistress who looked like his mom. And the people close to Nero probably would not have wanted to indulge his desires if he had them to sleep with his mother, because that would have given Agrippina a lot of power over her son. And it also would have been just an epic scandal. So. Obviously, they would not have wanted that to happen. So if Nero did want to bang his mom, a mistress was found who looked enough like Agrippina to satisfy Nero. But again, just, ugh, just, ugh. Yet again, the ancient Romans are gross. So for about two or three years, Agrippina was absolutely the shadow emperor. She was forbidden to enter the Senate, so she encouraged Nero to have meetings in the palace in a room, I love this detail, in a room where she could hide behind a curtain and give a little cough or throat clear to get her agenda across. So my mom says, I mean, I say that I cannot agree to that treaty. (laughs) I mean, this is just too incredible not to be true, right? Yeah. On the one hand, this is one of those details that make me a little bit ragey because I want my heroines to be super strong and I want her to just stride out there and tell people what's what. But on the other hand, Agrippina was forcing the Senate to have dealings with her in the only way possible at the time, making them come to her territory. Exactly. Like, yeah, I'm pissed off that she had to be behind the curtain. But before her, there was no curtain. There was no way she could be involved in these conversations. There was no way that she could have a voice or make her opinion known because it would have been held in the Senate House or in other places where women were not allowed to be. So I'm sad she didn't ever get to pull that curtain back and be like, listen up, boys. But I'm happy that at least she started the advancement of the game. It's one of those things where it's like in a few generations, if everything had gone a good way, then maybe women could pull back the curtain and not govern policy by going. (laughs) (coughs) (coughs) (laughs) Agrippina was ruling with her son and she was definitely influencing policy by um, really expressive throat clearing and running the empire that way, which is kind of an achievement in itself. It was all coming up Agrippina until it wasn't. It started with a delegation from Armenia who had come to Nero to discuss the crisis in their country. During their meeting, Agrippina approached Nero's dais with the intent of taking the seat beside him and very publicly showing that she was his co-ruler. The ever-present Seneca whispered to Nero to go forward and greet his mother and make sure that she take her proper place on her own dais far away from the delegation and the talk of politics. I just, what are you doing, Seneca? You know what, Seneca? You're going to get what's coming to you. Fuck you, Seneca. I would have loved to have been able to overhear the whispered conversation between Nero and Agrippina. I imagine it was super tense. Oh my god, yes. One word, quiet, no movement of her face or her features, just inner wheels, that rich inner life was already plotting. Just steely cold gaze. Inner wheels turning as she formulated her plan to get back into Nero's good books and remind him of who it was who had put him on his throne in the first place. It was not fuck you, Seneca, and it was not Burris. It was Agrippina, and he owed her everything. But things were about to get worse. Nero was getting a taste for power, and he was about to realize the same thing that his uncle Caligula had done all those years before. He was the emperor, and he could do anything to anyone. And Caligula famously said that to his own grandmother who raised him. So the first person on Nero's list was his stepbrother, brother-in-law, and cousin, Britannicus. Because it's a snake eating a circle again. 
It kind of makes sense when you look at it logically. As long as Britannicus was alive, Nero's rule could never be absolute. Because with Britannicus alive, there was someone who could challenge Nero's claim to the throne. And Agrippina wasn't afraid to remind her son of this fact. Whenever Nero stepped out of line, Agrippina reminded him that she was the one who had made him emperor. And she could just as easily make Britannicus emperor. Sweet, pliable, kind Britannicus. Britannicus, who has a much better singing voice than you do. Britannicus, who would be so much easier for everyone to work with. Just mull that over, Nero. Just think about that the next time you don't invite me up onto your dais. And of course, this pitting of son against stepson was bound to end in tragedy. We've talked about the death of Britannicus before in our Lacusta the Poisoner episode. It's really a great episode, but we are overlapping a lot of ground here. We're just telling the story from a different angle this time, which I think is cool. I hope you think it's cool. Exactly. We really hope you enjoy it. You can get the full scene in that episode, but here's the thumbnail version. Nero orchestrated another very special family banquet. He invited Octavia, his wife, and Britannicus Britannicus's sister, and Agrippina. And in the middle of the banquet, Britannicus collapsed in a violent seizure. This is how everything went down, according to Tacitus. Quote, there was a startled movement in the company seated around, and the more obtuse began to disperse. Those who could read more clearly sat motionless, their eyes riveted on Nero. He, without changing his recumbent attitude, observed that this was a usual incident due to the epilepsy with which Britannicus had been inflicted from his earliest infancy. But from Agrippina, in spite of her control over her features, came a flash of such terror and mental anguish that it was obvious she had been completely in the dark. And this was the most tense dinner party of this generation because Octavia, Nero's wife, and Britannicus's sister had no idea what was happening, nor did Agrippina. When everything went down, the two women were shocked and also unable to display their horror at what they suspected, that Nero had just poisoned Britannicus in front of everyone because to betray any emotion or any suspicion would make them targets for Nero. The more obtuse began to disperse. How obtuse can you possibly be to be that obtuse? <laughs> oh, yeah, the more obtuse, the people who totally didn't cotton on. I mean, to be honest, you possibly saved their lives. There were probably people who were like, oh, wow, now's a great time to go home. See you, Nero. Thanks for the dinner. Guess it's time to go feed the cat. Exactly. And just like that, Nero's rival was gone. Suetonius tells us that Nero had Britannicus, quote, hastily and unceremoniously buried in the pouring rain. This was the boy who should have ruled the empire after his father's death. Now there was no one to stand in Nero's way. Nero was going to Nero and nothing and no one could stop him. I think the reason Agrippina, obviously she's upset about this because Britannicus is being poisoned and that's horrible, but also Britannicus was her exit strategy from Nero. She was going to put him on the throne because he was more controllable. Yeah, totally. Agrippina was always looking at what to do next. Agrippina always had so many irons in the fire. And if Nero wasn't going to play the game that she wanted to play, then she would play that game with Britannicus. And that moment wherein she realizes that Nero has made the same ultimatum to her that Caligula made to his grandmother, the woman who raised him, when he asserts his power and says, I can do anything to anyone. When Nero hires Locusta behind her back to poison Britannicus, Agrippina must have been realizing, shit, I have made a monster. And I 
I can't even turn to my friend Lacusta because she's literally a person for hire. Right, because Locusta's now working for Nero. That's another thing. By 57 AD, Nero had really started his teenage rebellion phase. According to Suetonius, quote, his mother offended him by too strict surveillance and criticism of his words and acts, but at first he confined his resentment to frequent endeavors to bring upon her a burden of unpopularity by pretending that he would abdicate the throne and go off to Rhodes. So he's threatening to pull a Tiberius. Yeah, and he's just killed his heir. So if he actually pulled a Tiberius, there would be no one to rule. And if that happened, Agrippina would be in for some trouble. Yeah, because Nero was basically her pretext for power. So if he noped out, that means that she wouldn't have any basis to stay in control. So the next thing he did was depriving her of all of her honors and of her guard of Roman and German soldiers. He even forbade her to live with him and drove her from the palace. After that, he passed all bounds in harrying her, bribing men to annoy her with lawsuits while she remained in the city, sending Twitter trolls after her to dox her. This is just terrible. Just the worst, Nero. Come on. And after she retired to the country to pass her house by land and sea and break her rest with abuse and mockery. So it's like cyberbullying, but in real life. So bullying. Yeah. And you have to have a kind of sympathy for Agrippina. This was the son she'd risked everything for, the child for whom she'd endured abusive, loveless, and incestuous marriages in order to safeguard his future. And how was she rewarded? With abuse, exile, endless lawsuits meant to keep her poor and in terror. This is just exhausting to listen to. In 58 AD, Nero became smitten with a woman named Poppea, and he was determined to marry her and divorce his current wife, Octavia. And pretty much this is the moment where Agrippina told him, over my dead body, buddy. And you know what? Nero called her damn bluff. So the thing is, assassinating his mother wouldn't be easy. First, he considered poisoning her. There were problems with that approach, though, because Nero had already had Britannicus poisoned at a family dinner, and Agrippina had had Claudius poisoned at a family dinner. These family dinners were just extremely tense affairs. Exactly. And having a similar fate befall Agrippina would look mighty suspicious. Also, though, it runs in the family. Well, yeah. I mean, don't eat the mushrooms or drink the water. (laughs) Don't eat anything at the family dinners. Bring your own food. Keep it in a sealed compartment. Don't even trust your tasters. Tasters can be bribed. The other problem that Nero had was Agrippina was hyper vigilant against threats of this sort. Her household staff was incredibly loyal and watchful. And as we've said a few times, Agrippina made a regular practice of taking tiny doses of poison in advance to make sure that she herself was immune from poisoning. I bet Agrippina had a lot of anxiety. Yeah, well, can't blame her. I mean, her son's planning to poison her. So then Nero considered just straight up violence, a dagger in the dark. But that was also problematic because Agrippina was very popular with the troops and there was a risk that whoever was given this order would refuse to carry it out and might even warn her. And I think that's really worth looking at because if you can imagine Imagine the emperor is worried that his own soldiers and guards won't follow his order. And if he gives an order and they don't follow it, what does that mean for him as a ruler? Because all of power is just about the perception of power. That's absolutely true. I mean, if the Praetorian Guard refuses to carry out that order, they might even mutiny if he orders them to kill Agrippina, who's the daughter of Germanicus. And then he doesn't have a throne and he probably doesn't even have his life. It was actually quite dangerous for him to give this order. And that's why he doesn't give this order. Here's what Nero settled on. Option three, wacky mechanical hijinks. 
first, he had the ceiling of his mom's bedroom tampered with. What are you thinking, Nero? There was definitely some kind of messed up mother-son relationship going on here. But with Nero, I think he also feared killing his mother. He feared the retribution of maybe the gods or the furies or whatever else if he actually killed his mother. And the Praetorian Guard. And the Praetorian Guard, but I do think the idea of killing her really haunted him even before he'd committed himself to doing the deed. Yeah, so he wanted to find some kind of method of killing her where he wasn't overtly the person at fault. Exactly. First, he had the ceiling of his mom's bedroom tampered with, having a device secretly installed that would loosen parts of the ceiling tiles and drop them on top of her while she slept. And Agrippina probably had a lot of places that she lived, so he might have installed this while she was out living somewhere else. Apparently, Agrippina got warning of this ahead of time and managed to avoid being crushed to death by her own ceiling. So Nero turned to an even more cartoonishly ridiculous method of executing his mom. It involved a collapsing boat. The plan was to build a special boat that would break apart while out at sea. Quote from Tacitus, and here I think is the attraction of this plan for Nero. Quote from Tacitus, nowhere had accidents such scope as on salt water, and if the ladies should be cut off by shipwreck, who would read murder into the delinquency of wind and wave? I mean, who would even suspect, right? Yeah, because you know what? The dolphins will only protect those who ask for their help. He's not really factoring in pods of friendly dolphins or his mom's swimming ability. I know. Clearly, he did not get the memo that his mother survived being flooded by a lake. (laughs) Right. Nero planned to celebrate the festival of Minerva at Baie. This took place in March. And I have to say that would totally be a festival at which Agrippina went and was like, yes, Minerva. I totally get down with all of this because Agrippina and Minerva would have been friends. She was the goddess of wisdom and strategy and warcraft and lots and lots of things that actually served Agrippina very well. Minerva, you could say, would have been Agrippina's special patron saint or the equivalent of that in ancient Rome, maybe. I don't know. So leading up to the event, Nero was extra nice to his mom and let rumors circulate that he wanted to reconcile. When Nero invited his mom to this festival with him in the spirit of reconciliation, she accepted the invitation. And I mean, he had to have sent her a really great gift basket. Oh my God, he sent her the good Cheetos. (laughs) You know, until we started this podcast, I had no idea that there were good and bad Cheetos. The thing is, when you're an expat like I am, there are certain things that you can only get from home and they make a total difference. And one of those things for me is Cheetos. You can only get like American crunchy Cheetos from America. If you get them from somewhere else, they're not as good. Nero met his mother on the beach by a cove on the lake of Baie. And Nero made sure to invite his mother to an evening banquet so she'd be kept out well into the night. I think he wanted to keep her out so that when the boat broke up, it was all dark and people didn't really know what was happening and no one really saw what happened. Exactly. And probably like depending on the time of day and if there was tides or not tides, it might make it easier or more difficult to get to her. Like there's a whole host of reasons why that was the better time to do it. Although Nero is not the smartest, so I'm not sure he considered those things. You see a lot of Nero doing a lot of dumb things. If anyone was making these detailed plans, it wasn't him. Exactly. While his mom was occupied at the banquet, Nero gave orders for one of his own ship captains to accidentally collide with Agrippina's boat so Nero could offer her a replacement. So mother and son dined. Nero managed to behave civilly all throughout the banquet, even seating his mother in an elevated place above his own chair. After dinner, Nero escorted his mom back to the beach. This is a quote from Suetonius. In high spirits and even kissing her breasts as they parted. I don't even know what to do with that, Jenny. Ew. 
Yep. So it was a beautiful night. Imagine a clear sky full of stars and a sea as calm as glass. Agrippina got into her son's boat because hers had suffered that unfortunate quote-unquote accident. And she set off. Not long after launch, the canopy above Agrippina's couch, which had been weighted down with lead, collapsed. It killed one of Agrippina's attendants on the spot. But Agrippina and her friend Acronia were saved by the sides of the couches they were lying on, which were sturdy enough to shelter them. Yeah, I guess that Nero did not factor into this plan the uh, boat furniture. Well, totally. That's why I don't believe he was paying attention to tides and things like that. The boat did not break up his plan. I mean, who didn't see that one coming? (laughs) The surprise is no one. (laughs) So the crew, which was in league with Nero, deliberately capsized the ship. Agrippina and her friend Acronia were both pitched into the sea. Acronia reached the shore first, desperate for rescue, loudly proclaiming that she was the empress and Nero's assassins, waiting on the shore, beat her to death, quote, with poles, oars, and every nautical weapon that came to hand. There's a dead seagull on the beach. They're using that. Maybe there's a dolphin. And this is the moment where I like to think Agrippina is still on the water and she calls out to a friendly pod of dolphins. And they rescue her. Because of course Agrippina speaks dolphin because she learned it in Pontus. Totally. What else did she have to learn? Clearly Agrippina had made friends with some dolphins when she was in Pontus and she could now swim like one and she spoke their language and she just swam secretly back to shore in a pod of friendly dolphins and then hitched a ride on a fishing boat and made it back to her own villa in secrecy thanking the dolphin king. So once back home Agrippina regrouped because this was an extremely transparent scheme. It was screamingly obvious that Nero had just tried to have her killed with this boat and Nero would hear soon enough that she'd survived the attempt. And one thing Agrippina needed to definitely not do was give her son any hint that she suspected anything. So she decided to try and get ahead of the news, sending her freedman Agurmus to tell Nero that she'd been in an accident, but not to worry, she was fine. Praise Saturn. Praise Minerva. Right, praise Minerva. No need to visit. She said she just needed to take some time to recover. Just stay where you are, Nero. It's fine. Nero, meanwhile, was panicking. He'd heard that his mom had survived and believed she was even now plotting her revenge. Any minute now, she was going to arm her own slaves or whip up the emperor's own troops against him or go to the Senate and accuse him of trying to have her killed. He had to do something because Nero had zero chill. He summoned Fuck You Seneca and Burrus, the leader of the Praetorian Guard, to figure out what to do. He was through with elaborate plots, and by now he didn't care what people thought. He was ready to take the direct approach. Burrus told Nero that the Praetorian Guard would never kill Agrippina. They were still loyal to the memory of Germanicus. I mean, Nero knew that already. Burrus is not telling him something he didn't know. No, but he's not telling him what he wants to hear. And that can be fatal. So Nero assigned the task of assassinating his mom to his freedman, Anicetus. Anicetus was also the guy who came up with the collapsing boat idea. So if anyone was thinking about tides and stuff, it was him. Yeah, and also if anyone had to see this plan all the way through, it was him. Yeah, because he had no loyalty to Agrippina. I think there was actually a feud between them. Probably. Makes sense. Yeah. So meanwhile, Agurmus, Agrippina's freedmen, they're all these freedmen. They're a freedman just thick in the air. Left, right, and center. So this guy rolled up to the palace with his message that Agrippina had survived this boat accident. Nero, in the most ridiculously transparent ploy ever, tossed a sword at Agurmus's feet while he was delivering his message and then immediately accused him of attempted 
attempted assassination and ordered his arrest. What even is that? That is called grasping at straws. Nero was like, hang on a minute, guys. I need to get some straws. Because it's grasping time. It's just like, oh, Emperor, you seem to have dropped your knife. Oh, no, 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 no. That is your knife. (laughs) Get him out of my sight. I just picked up the knife to give it back to you. No, 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 no. You don't speak. I'm the Emperor. You get him out of here. Head goes off. Everything's just not coming up a germis right now. Nothing comes up a germis. So Nero now had this extremely thin, hilariously transparent pretext for having his mother executed. Meanwhile, rumors were going around that Agrippina was in grave danger. The people loved Agrippina. We can't stress that enough. And the public rushed to her rescue. According to Tacitus, there was a rush to the beach as man after man learned the news. We assume there were some women there too, but ancient sources tend to just want to write about men when possible. It's possible. It's also possible that the word they used for man would have been like the plural Like, kind of like how we used to say mankind instead of humanity. Anyway, some swarmed up the seawall, some into the nearest fishing boats. Others were wading middle deep into the surf, a few standing with outstretched arms. The whole shore rang with lamentations and vows and the din of conflicting questions and vague replies. A huge multitude streamed up with lights, and when the knowledge of her safety spread, set out to offer congratulations— until at the sight of an armed and threatening column, they were forced to scatter. Incetus arrived with a column of men and broke through the crowd, pounding down the door of Agrippina's villa. Members of her household appeared to defend her, and they were dragged off by Incetus's troops. Agrippina inside heard the approaching men and the shouted alarms, and then Incetus appeared in the doorway, flanked by centurions. They surrounded the couch she was sitting on. One of the soldiers struck her on the head with a club. Agrippina responded by burying her stomach and ordering, smite my womb. Those were her famous last words. Yeah, suck it, you guys. That's what she was saying. A baller to the end. Suck my Agrippinus. <laughs> <laughs> According to Suetonius, when Nero heard she died, he, quote, hurried off to view the corpse and handled her limbs, criticizing some and commending others. Ew. And that becoming thirsty, meanwhile, he took a drink. Jen, didn't you read something about how he had sex with his mom after she died? Yeah, I can't remember where I saw that mentioned. So I'm telling you guys, giant salt lick, but I'm pretty sure there was a rumor that he had sex with his mother's corpse. So like, much like the ancient sources, we're just basically repeating unfounded rumors here. Yet he could not either then or ever afterwards endure the stings of conscience, though soldiers, senate, and people tried to hearten him with their congratulations, for he often owned that he was hounded by his mother's ghost and by the whips and blazing torches of the Furies. He'd even had rites performed by the Magi in the effort to summon her shade and entreat it for forgiveness. Moreover, in his journey through Greece, he did not venture to take part in the Eleusinian mysteries, since at the beginning the godless and wicked are warned by the herald's proclamation to go hence. So you can't participate in the Eleusinian mysteries if you have a shady background, apparently. Yeah, you can if you've murdered your mother, Jenny. I think there's probably wiggle room if you run a traffic light. But, you know, if you were Nero's father and ran over a small child in the middle of the Appian Road while they were playing with a doll, maybe don't attend. And this passage from Emma Southern's Agrippina, Empress, Exile, Hustler, Whore, describes how people cared for her and took care of her body and remains after her death. Quote, 
Agrippina was cremated the same day she died in the grounds of her own villa as the sun set that evening. Her body was placed on a dinner couch, and that was placed into the pyre in her own grounds. As the flames rose, one of her ex-slaves named M. Nestor, is this the same M. Nestor that was like Messalina's lover? I don't think so, because he was an actor. Right, so M. Nestor, it's spelled M-N-E-S-T-R, so that's why I'm saying it that way drove his own sword into himself, refusing to live in a world without her. Nero refused her a burial or a tomb. Only her own slaves publicly mourned her, and they buried her on the road between Mizenum and Baie. Stories circulated about her for years. Some claimed that they could hear trumpets calling from Agrippina's grave, and others that Agrippina's ghost haunted Nero's dreams with the furies at her back for years. Immediately, portents were reported. A woman gave birth to a snake. Another woman was hit by lightning and killed while she was in her husband's arms, more lightning struck the Capitoline in 14 places. A much-believed story was that Agrippina had consulted astrologers when Nero was born and had been told that he would become emperor but that he would kill his mother. Let him kill me, she replied, as long as he reigns. The death of Agrippina shook Rome and the quake was felt across the empire. The woman who had stood at the center of the imperial family for a decade was suddenly gone. Everybody in her family had had bad burials. They'd been scattered on the beach in exile, or they'd been buried hastily in a garden. They'd all had these shady burials, and then someone from the family, usually Agrippina, would collect their bones and make sure that they got a good burial, right? They were always collected by the next member in the family. So Caligula collected his mother and brother's bones, and then Julia Lavilla and Agrippina collected the bones of Caligula and buried him in the family mausoleum. And then Agrippina obviously got her sister Julia Lavilla's bones and had them buried. And now she is the very end of the family, the one who's risen the highest and lasted the longest and done arguably the most good. And there is no one to get her bones. She's buried on the road. She's not in the family tomb of Augustus in Rome. She's totally forgotten. Her servants are the ones who had to take up a collection to have her cremated and buried. They were the ones who took care of the last rites for her. Yeah, that is heartbreaking. Shortly before Nero had his mother executed, he threw away a golden snake bracelet she had made for him when he was a boy. This was a bracelet that had been one of his prized possessions. Agrippina had the bracelet fashioned after the skin of a snake that had been found under his pillow when Messalina's henchman had tried to assassinate him as a small child. The snake skin had saved his life. The bracelet had been there at the beginning of Nero's legend. It was the thing that had given his story the hint of the divine. And once the bracelet was gone, he missed it terribly. I like to imagine that he looked down at his arm and always felt naked and afraid and vulnerable. Just like the bracelet, Nero had thrown away the people in his life who tried to make him a better man and ruler. Because after Agrippina's death, it wasn't long before her carefully chosen advisors, Seneca and Burrus, were forced to commit suicide or were poisoned on Nero's orders. Rome had passed from the hands of measured and reasoned people, people who had done some questionable things, but who had also always had their eyes on the prize. And that prize was nothing short of ruling the Roman Empire. And without Agrippina, Rome would burn. But that, as they say, is a story for another day. So that is it for this week. We'll see you next time. And in the meantime, come and talk to us on social media. You can find us on Twitter at Ancient Hist Fan, on Instagram and on Facebook at Ancient History Fangirl. And we are on Patreon, Jenny. Yeah, we're on Patreon. We talked about that at the beginning of this episode. We've had some really amazing patrons. We're so excited. We wanted to take this moment to shout out some of our new patrons. Adam Armstrong. Alexa Bartlett. 
Ramin, and I apologize if I pronounced your name wrong. Sarah Clevering. And Tina Nicole. Thank you guys so, so much. Thank you guys so much for listening. We'll be back in two weeks time with some news. In the meantime, make sure you say hello to us on social media and see you soon. 